Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie Mack here and my guest is so exciting. She is an elite chef, one of the most high profile women in the restaurant world. Having first studied history, she went on to work for Gordon Ramsay for 17 years, despite many of her male colleagues thinking she would last a week or two at most. She got her first Michelin star at the Connacht in London in 2004 and opened her restaurant Murano in Mayfair in 2008, winning a Michelin star within four months of opening. In 2022, she was awarded an OBE for services to the hospitality industry in the NHS during COVID. Now, as well as running her restaurants, she appears on TV on MasterChef and Saturday Kitchen and co-hosts the Waitrose podcast Dish with our mutual friend, Nick Grimshaw. Angela Harner, what a pleasure to have you on Changes. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're here to talk about change. Um, Before we get to that, how many restaurants do you have now? Talk me through the Angela Harner empire, please. So we've got Murano in Mayfair, which is the one-star Michelin. Um, and that's 15 years old this year, which is great. And wow. given the turbulence of restaurants at the moment, that's really very proud that it's still going strong, still full, yeah. all the rest of it. Then we've got three Cafe Murano's in London, which are sort of these really simple Italian trattorias. And then I work with uh, Robin Hudson and Luke Holder, and we do Limewood Hotel, and we do a restaurant out in the French Alps at a hotel called Portetta. So that's seasonal. So that's December to April. So that's that's keeps me going, you know. And do you still cook <laughs> on a daily level? Not on a daily basis. I'll be absolutely honest. I go to the restaurants all the time. I'm in there and I do services, but I don't do the day to day. I do all the menu tasting, all the check in, all that. But you put a tier of people in place, and it's their job to do that. And I I am a believer in developing people forward. And I think Mm. unless you step back a bit and let them do it. And some chefs would disagree with that. They love the control. They will always want to be there every service. For me, I think I want to get the next people moving forward. And to do that, you've got to let them do it. You've got to let them make mistakes and you've got to let them run the businesses. Yeah, yeah. I saw that your head chef in Murano is a woman at the moment. I don't know. Do you like make a point of trying to like bring through women or no? Um, I'd quite like to in kitchens because I think it's great to have a good balance. Yeah. I, ironically, I think all my restaurants at the moment, like the front of house, are all run by women. And in every level, there's probably at least two in senior management. And I and the chefs, I've got one female head chef. Oh, no, two. Sorry, Morella as well. So Morella and M. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I like the balance. It's got to be. I think any industry, you need a bit of everything. Sure. Otherwise, it's, yeah, dull. What would you say is the biggest change you're going through in your life at the moment? Um, I think adjusting from being very hands-on and micromanaging to a certain degree to actually stepping back and exactly what I said at the beginning, letting people do their job. Delegation. And it's too easy. Yeah, delegation. And it's and it's really hard to do when you're in restaurants. It's also hard to do when you're in a business with people because people want you. They work mm. for you and they want to see you. So if you step back so far that you're never in there, it's who are they working for? 
So it's finding that balance of being available when they really need you, doing what you need to do, but actually letting them do their job and giving you some detachment. But it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. All right, let's get into our changes. So the first change is your childhood change. Tell me about that, please. So um, my father was in the Royal Navy. Um, He's in the Merchant Navy, rather. And he, him and my mum, so I would have been 55, 54, um, married later for their generation. You know, if you think about it, many people's parents were marrying in their 20s. They didn't get married in the 30s. So we were late kids. Um, And then in his early 40s, he was 47, my father, he died. So we were, I was seven, coming up for my eighth birthday. My brother was coming up to his 10th and my sister wasn't even one. Right. So my mum was widowed, you know, early into her marriage, left with three children under the age of 10. And because he was in the Navy, we lived in Kent, whereas all the family members from her side and my father's side all lived up in Essex near London. So, yeah, that was a transformational change. Just suddenly you move house, you change schools, you've lost a parent. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think to my mum's credit, we all went the right way. We could have all gone other ways. But actually, mum, I think if anyone delegates my voltage, you know, she, yeah. we had to get on with it. We had to go to school by ourselves. We had to come home from school by ourselves. You know, I looked after my sister. I had to help her cook. We had to do shopping. You know, there was no... My mum couldn't look after three kids and not expect us to do our bit. So course, I think yeah. we matured easily. You know, I remember my brother in his early teens going up to London on the tube quite happily, coming yeah. home. You know, the, and also, you know, you're talking 40 years ago, 30 years ago, rather. So it was a different time, it, you know, and I know it sounds you sound very old when you say, oh, it was like that in my day. But it felt less dangerous, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we grew up quite quickly, and I think, you know, as a result, I think we've done okay. You, you learn to be very independent. And we didn't have lots of wealth. You know, my my mum and my father never came from money or anything, you know. So we worked to do well in our sort of mm. careers. And I always remember as a kid, I'd always have two or three jobs because my mother didn't have this extra money, this pocket money. So I'd have a paper out, I'd do a Saturday job. You know, my brother would work for friends up in London. So we were all trying to scrape together money. Yeah. Um, and so lots of ways... A tragic change, but I think we've come out of it okay, if I'm honest. What kind of man was your father and what kind of father figure was he? There's always this thing. I love playing cards. I'm a real, I love going on holiday and playing cards right. and games. And I remember, really remember this really when I was young. My sister was obviously born, so she was a baby. And I'm a seven-year-old seeing a baby. It's all exciting. I want to help with the baby. Mm. But I'm playing with my dad cards or something. And he said, are you playing cards or are you looking after your sister? Yeah, make your mind up. And I chose the cards. I just wanted to play that. And it was that thing of my mum would always say to my brother was a quite bad loser as a kid. And my mum would always say, let them win, Paddy. Just let them win. Yeah. You know, he's an Irish man from Cork. And he goes, the worst lesson you teach your child is to let them win. Yeah. And so he never did. And that's the sort of man he was. He was very, not stern. I think it's very fair, very straight. Irish wit, Irish humour. He had this great album that my mum gave to my f- brother when he got married. Right. That um, it was a black and, black and white album, all his youth. So pictures of him oh, wow. with, you know, cigarettes, drinks of whiskey, yeah. one girlfriend, friends, all the rest of it, going up to the final page. And he had little lines that said, you know, me and, you know, S- Sophie or me and Don yeah. down the pub or something. And the last page was a picture of their wedding. And he put the end, you know, that's it, it's all over. And then the, f- the final page is a picture of my brother, who was the eldest, and he said, the living end. And that, I think that's oh, it. That's how wow. 
you know, my father enjoyed his youth, loved yeah. it. Probably as a reason, died early, probably drank too much and smoked too much for his generation. Can I ask how he died? It was like yellow jaundice, okay. so like liver cirrhosis. So yeah, right. drank too much really, you know, in yeah. the Navy, I think that's the way it was. But then when he knew he was a family man, he was a family man, you know, and, right. you know, he was great with us kids. For what we remember, you know, obviously, you know, he was away a lot in the Navy, yeah. so we don't remember much. But there's snippets you remember. I do remember when we were told. I remember that he died. I remember going to visit him in the hospital. Yeah. And my, you know, my brother saying he must be ill. Look at all those machines dangling. And I think right. now, in 2000 or whatever, he would be cured. There'd be no problem. Okay. But I think back in the 75 when he died, no, 76, mm. sorry. Um, you know, we weren't as advanced, you know, so how do you deal with it? So, um, mm. yeah, that's where it is. And as a result, we moved up to London or to Essex, basically. We moved to Havery to be near my mother's family and to be near my father's family. Yeah. And and that's so we then, you know, we, we had a great life. We lived in Kent as kids, really in the countryside, mm. walked to school, all very nice and twee. And then as teenagers, we were in London. And that to me was, you know, to live near London when you're a kid and to be able to go up and down is great. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's kind of a dream scenario, isn't it? To be kind of yeah. out of it, but to be able to go in when you choose and when yeah, you need. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah. So your mum sounds like she was, is your mum still around? Yeah, yeah, she's yeah, still pretty, around. Pretty, pretty amazing oh, woman. God. Like very Driving strong. Driving us nuts. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> <laughs> we love her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah, been yeah. great. But, you know, very Catholic. You know, she's Catholic Italian to Catholic Irish, you know, so yeah. very now, she, now her focus is all of us going to heaven. And there's some of my right. relatives going, there is no heaven, <laughs> that's just sending her over the edge. What are you on about? There's no heaven. We're all going to meet in heaven. I'm going to see dad. I'm going to say, all right, mom. You believe oh, what you want to believe. Goodness. If that gives mum peace, that's what you've got to do. And, you know, and I think mm. that's how we've got to play it. You know, we can't let her go yeah. wherever she, we go and not think she's going to see us all again, if that makes her happy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you mentioned your dad's family were there too. Are you still in touch with the Irish yes, side? Yes, yeah. I mean, family? he had three, yeah. two sisters and a brother. One, his brother, my uncle John, is still alive. And then there's lots of yeah. cousins. We're all the next generation. Uh, I think there are still relatives in Ireland, you know, but quite distant and yeah. stuff. And then obviously on my mother's side, we've got all the Italians. So, you know, both families were big into food. I think my fa my grandfather during the war, um, because they were in Essex, was a big foreman in Fords, the motor factory. And he would yeah. bring, get a load of the Irish people over to work in Fords. And my mum said, you know, what they used to do, she said when she first got married, you know, she lived with her in-laws, she'd get these guys come over and they'd see Valentine Hart there and they'd be grateful because they were coming for a job, but they'd open their bags mm. and they'd bring a chicken out or a pack of butter or some, you know, because they yeah. would bring, because food yeah. after the war was so sparse. And right, that's, you yeah. know, that was their sort of thanks that they've got a job. They've moved over from Ireland. He's helped them and we're going to repay yeah. the food. So mum said she just open his bags would open and just food would top out. And the same in Italy that if my grandmother lived in this country, she'd moved over here when she was 19, but we'd go back a lot to the family house. But if you had stayed with Nonna, before you left, she'd open your bag and she'd take clothes out and put bottles of olive oil and pieces of cheese in and stuff. And that was to take back to... Your, you know, your aunties and all the rest of it. So yeah. we were smugglers yeah. at yeah. an early age. Food smugglers. I love it. Now, your nana was kind of responsible for you learning how to cook and your yeah, mom, of course. Right? Yeah, both of them. Yeah, because um, 
we moved, as I said, we moved up to be near her. She was uh, lived 20 minutes up the road. So, you know, families, yeah. there's an expectation, I think, in Italian families that you help the generation above you. And if you're yeah. the eldest daughter, let's be honest, it's never the son. Um, yeah. I was always expected to go and help. So I would always help her prepare the annolini for Christmas. I would always help her prepare the tortelli. If she wanted to make something for Sunday lunch, it was always me that went up and helped her. And actually, I've never, I loved it. I loved cooking with her. I loved being in the kitchen. So to me, it was never a hardship. It only became a hardship as a teenager when you wanted to go out. But I, I still yeah. thought it was great. And essentially, your grandmother was running her own kitchen. You were seeing, you were watching someone run a kitchen. Yeah, exactly. Well. You know, and there was no swaying scales. She did it, as they say in Italia which is by the eye. So she'd just look up, see, and never weigh anything. But she would make bread, yeah. she would make fresh pasta, she would do everything. And she, you know, and her food always tasted delicious. You know, she was just a very simple cook, but absolutely understood the the quality of ingredients and getting the best you could afford, I think. You know, it was never about yeah. highfalutin products, produce rather, but it was buying it and making sure it was right. And so you didn't study cooking am I yes, right in that, yeah in that yeah yeah so you studied history when did you first start thinking about cooking as a vocation I suppose um I suppose probably in my late teens before I went off to college I thought I'd like to go into cooking I don't know why I think because I was quite good at it and I did it at home a lot and I was interested in it and I wasn't really academic I was okay but my brother was the really bright one right and, and and my mum always said, go to France and do a cordon bleu. And she said, learn all that. That's the way to do it. But I didn't really want to go off to France. And I wanted to go off to college to study. And I thought all my mates are going off to college. So that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I sort of put it on hold for a bit. Still did a load of stuff at uni when we were there. So we spent all our money on food and going out to restaurants. But then after I left college, I, I went off to start working in restaurants. And because I work hard, I get my head down. I'm sort of quite honest in the sense of I don't go in and say, yeah, I can do all these things. I go in and say, actually, I don't know how to, you show me, I'm here to absorb yeah. all your knowledge. People like that. And I've got on well with the bosses and, you know, I sort of proved myself, you know, and that and that's how I sort of managed to get where I did and work for good people. Watching this documentary I saw um, on when you were the head chef at the Connacht, so you were elected by Gordon Ramsay to be the head chef at the Connacht. So it's his restaurant that you are running. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I I knew there was pressure in terms of running a kitchen. Yeah. But, you know, it was interesting to see him say, well, actually, if this fails, yeah. then probably a lot of my other restaurants will fail too. Yeah. And it's all on Angela. Yeah. And she has to get this right. And it was just like, Oh my god! Like the amount of pressure on your shoulders, yeah. And then, and then just watching you work eight, what, eighteen hours a day, mm. sixteen hours a day, something like seven, seven in the morning till two, two at night, you know. Yeah. And having to run this kitchen, having to deal with the staff that are already there who are resentful and confused, and then having to bring in new people, having an entirely new kitchen design, like all the different elements, mm. it just kind of blew my mind. And you do seem tired. But you seem so calm, mm. so calm. What is it about you that can deal with this fucking huge amount of pressure, do you think, <laughs> and not crack? Um, I suppose, I, well, it's funny. My mum always says I'm like my dad. 
you know, what right. you see with Andrew is what you see is what you get. You know, if she's in a bad mood, she's in a bad mood. If she's in a good mood, she's in a good mood. There's no change. I'm very the same. And I treat people the same. I'm not, you know, you could be you, you could be Princess Anne, you could be, you know, I'll be the same yeah. person with everyone. And my dad was very much like that, you know. And mm. I think my mum says, you've got his genes. You don't panic. You don't get stressed. I do, of course, I get stressed. And of course, you get your panic. But it's always a level of me that says, come on, let, let's keep this in perspective here. We're not falling right. off a cliff. We're running a restaurant and things will go wrong. And as soon as you bring in people in employees, it's always going to go wrong. I mean, Robin and I always say restaurants and hotels would be great without the public and without the staff. You know, they'd be an easy <laughs> win. But of course... <laughs> Dealing with the public, dealing with customers and dealing with staff, it's going to be challenging. Uh, and I think that's the way I am. And also, when you've worked, you know, Gordon, I still, this day, I think is one of the best people out there. I think he's an amazing chef. He's been a brilliant mentor to me over the years. And he's a great friend. And um, he would be so, you know, as we've all seen it, and I've experienced the way he would do it. And it's not, I don't want to run kitchens like that because it, it stressed me out too much. I just make my point, deal with it. And I'll still make my point if things go wrong. But I don't want to get to that level of just, you know, screaming and shouting. Because it's just... Hysterical screaming it's and shouting, just, yeah. It's not, it's, it's not necessary. And these days, forget it. No one's going to stand next well, to you. I was going to ask that. I was yeah. going to say, like, is, is that culture still tolerated where you just get screamed at in a kitchen and shouted at? Like, it, do, do people still stand for that? I think most people don't. I mean, there are kitchens, I know for a fact, there are chefs that still do that. And that's to their, de you know, their fault. And there are cooks that will stand next to them because they're good chefs or they think their food's amazing or they're two or three yeah. stars or whatever. Um, I personally don't. I don't like it. You know, the only person I say that can scream and shout at anyone is me, I said, because I own the business. I said, everyone mm. else who works for me, you just show level of respect for everyone. Treat people like you want to because no one wants to go. And the mental health now across the board in generations of people, especially post-COVID, that's what you, you've got to look for. Forget anything else. So you've got to appreciate what people are going through with their families, where they live, the cost of living. You can't go in and what to come to work and then be screamed and shouted at. Of course, they're never yeah. coming back the next day. And what about hours? Have they had to change? Hours have definitely changed. You know, we changed hours a lot long ago. I mean, as I said, Murano is 15 years old now. And probably two years into it, we, you know, the norm was five doubles across most restaurants so that when i What's say five, five, five double, double shifts you're basically starting at eight o'clock in the morning and you're finishing at 12 o'clock at night you know Jesus. and you'll get a couple of hours in between if you're lucky and so you do five of them a week five of them a week you'd have two days off that was the norm across restaurants a long long time wow. ago there probably are still some that do it which is madness but that's down to them um and then we i we do it now uh we do six seven shifts a week and how it works at Murano is they basically, they like to do three doubles and this is their choice because I think you've got to ask your team. Yeah. And they say, we want to do three doubles, chef, because then we'll go four days to three days off. And that's yeah. they get. So they love it. It's, it's, it's quite like nursing, yeah. similar hours to nursing. That's yeah. it. And they'll basically get Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, off. Yeah. And they love that. And that for them is perfect. So when you were starting out, you know, working for Gordon, doing this, I'm using the Connacht as an example, because yeah. it feels like the most extreme example. I mean, we'll get to Murano, but like extreme example of how it was. Yeah. I guess what were the most challenging parts for you in terms of that time of trying to run that kitchen, trying to prove a lot of people wrong, trying to keep everything afloat? 
Well, I think that was one of the first things was to prove that we knew what we were doing because there was a lot of resentment that one a woman had come in, literally. How did that resentment look and feel like what were people saying shit to your face? Uh, there was a couple of that. You had a couple of customers. One guy said in, he'd ring up the reception and go, she's still there. And Layla at the time was the receptionist. She goes, you mean Angela? Yes, Angela is still cooking here. And goes, well, I want a table. Lilia, to her credit, said to this guy, she goes, why? She goes, why do you want to come? You don't like the restaurant anymore. You yeah. don't like the fact Angela's here or we're here. So why am I booking you a table to complain? And I thought, mm. brilliant. You've just fronted mm. it out. There's many great things about the Connaught, but one of the great things about, and there is a level of this today, and I think you and I probably see it. We like to go to the same places. I never thought I would become that person of yeah. a creature of habit that I like to go to the same restaurants, the same hotels. The same. I always thought, oh, no, that's boring. And the Connaught yeah. has had years of these sort of customers but actually they're the loyalist people and a lot of them would come and there was this guy john mccullough big chicago um lawyer came to the corner every year for three weeks at a time right and knew that i was taking over always would meet three two friends there they're staying in london blah 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 yeah and he afterwards he pulled me aside when he came in at the food and he said i've written to my friends said we've got nothing to worry about so you had wonderful customers yeah. like that, and then you had yeah. arseholes like the other people. Yeah. I'd say we converted 90%. It was probably 10%. We were never going to convert, but so yeah. what? You've also got to move hotels forward and restaurants forward. A new generation came in. Yeah, so people just react badly to change anyway, exactly, don't they? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And certain people wanted certain tables, and they'd sit on the same table, eat the same breakfast, six mm. days a week, blah, blah, blah. And this American guy came over. And he again would come for three weeks of the year. And he said to me, you know, Angela, you know, why can't I sit on 35? And I said, he goes, that's the table I want. And I said, to be honest, we all have to wait for the man on table 35 to die. And then everyone can move up a table. <laughs> but until he does, that's his table. And that will be his table for life. And I said, because he comes every day. I said, what do you want me to do? Yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and that was the beauty of it, you know. And I sort of, yeah. it took me a while to understand that and appreciate it. I absolutely, you know, I'd think, oh, these mad people, what the bloody hell. But actually yeah. when I got it, then you think, you know, these are your bread and butter. So I think there was Martin Sorrell, you know, the big guy from, I don't know, like advertising and stuff. So Martin Sorrell, he came one day, we totally screwed his breakfast. We didn't realise we'd done it. And... Yeah. I don't know, a month later, the FT did an interview with him and they said, where do you eat? He goes, well, I used to go to breakfast at the Connaught with Angela Hartnett, but we had such a terrible breakfast. I no longer go there. And I read God. this. Oh, so, oh, you know, you reach out cutting. this email and, you know, it came out. And in a way, it's a good barometer, that these sort of people that come all the time. Because when you suddenly don't see them, what, yeah. what's gone on? Hold on, why are they not here on a Thursday? So either they're on holiday, we should generally mm. know. They're ill, which you might not know, or you've screwed something up and they've just decided yeah. they're not, you know. So there's a lot of that sort of negate, making sure you're aware of who's in. But I loved it in the end. I thought it was brilliant. And I miss yeah. the Connell. And, you know, I always, I think it's a great hotel. Again, watching that documentary where you're starting the Connacht, you have to present your menu to Gordon and the Marcus Waring, a couple of other chefs, to taste and approve. Mm. And there's a scene where all the food comes in. It's the first tasting of a, a good few tastings before you. It's like yeah. a rehearsal for a place. Yeah. I mean, you have to work up the menu. But the first one, you see them eating it and you see them kind of, you know, criticizing it. And then at the end, 
he's very nice, Gordon. It's a, definitely a different side of him seeing him being your boss. And you can see the absolute respect he has for you. But at the end, he's like, OK, so we're going to hand over a couple of dishes to Marcus. He's going to take that dish. He's going to take that on. And he's going to, you know, you're going to be supported. You're going to be helped. And part of me at that point was like, fucking no. She can do it herself. Like, don't hand it over to the man. She's got this. Yeah. And you're very cool about it. You're like, yeah, yeah no problem. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. But I don't know. Part of me was like annoyed yeah. for you. Yeah. That, you, that, that, that had to happen to you. And I, and again, this could be bullshit, but I was like, is it because she's a fucking woman? Would that happen to a man? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know, because I suppose I wrote the menu and I didn't, given that I'd worked with Marcus for about, eight years I was just head chef and sous chef for a long time I wrote that menu and did it all on my back and there was a part of me that thought I can do this I'll be fine and I did yeah. make some fundamental mistakes and that's fine and yeah. Marcus after said to me why didn't you call me why didn't you sit down with me and let me help you go through this menu before you did it and in yeah. hindsight I probably should have done that because then I think I couldn't have been but I didn't and then and I don't think Gordon did it for because I was a woman I think he did it because he knew I needed some help there yeah because yeah. you know we were, I was thrown into running this huge hotel, which if you think about it, Gordon had taken over Claridge's, but he'd only taken over the restaurant. They weren't doing room service. So you're doing all I the I was doing everything bits. else. So yeah. there was a much yeah. bigger pressure. Claridge's had been such a success. They wanted to make sure that Connaught followed suit. Yeah. And also they weren't stupid. They had eyes on bigger prizes than Savoy, the Barclay, all these other restaurants. Yeah. With, so there was a lot of that. And also, at the end of the day, the one thing that's always, when I've worked with Gordon, I was employed by him. You know, I never forgot yes. that. I was, he, yeah. I worked for him. And if he said, Angela, you've got to put a tart to tan on like this. Yes, Gordon. You know, that's your job. Yeah. So yeah. I never, ever felt that sort of resentment. And afterwards realised, you know, the help was great. And Marcus knew how to make, run a restaurant. And, you know, I'd done this. And he goes, you know, you're putting a half an artichoke or a whole artichoke on every plate. It's going to cost your food costs. Change that mm. to put a bit, you know, and that's what I mm. needed the help with. And once I got it, yeah. then I clicked. But it was that first initial. I think it takes a lot of strength to be able to, in that scenario, to be like, yeah, okay, let's yeah. get the help yeah. as well. Um, I saw that um, on one of the comments on the YouTube underneath this documentary, which is on YouTube, I'll put a link to it actually in the show notes if anyone wants to watch it. It says, being an executive chef at a Ramsey restaurant is for only a very few elite chefs who have thick skin, great cooking talents, leadership skill and obsessive perfectionism. <laughs> would, would you say that's correct? Probably true. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, because yeah. you're working for someone like that, so you've got to be the same. Yeah, it's mm. it's so much more than cooking. Yeah, yeah, of like course it's it so is. So much more. It's like it's mm. so much about being able to communicate with people, yeah. right? Well, and I think that I think some of the best chefs in the world aren't necessarily the best managers or people. You know, because yeah. I think these days, again, as I said, it's I always look at people now and I think. Yes, you've got to be a good chef, but can you manage people? If you can't manage people, I don't care how good you are because I need you to manage a team. And yeah. these days you've got to really look after that team. And I think, and, and that for me, is, management is up there equally with cooking, you know, yeah. because you, otherwise you're never get you're going to be constantly rolling through staff and no one wants that. It's just a headache. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So then we fast forward to you going out on your own. So you started your biggest change of adult life, going alone and yeah. buying your own business. Give me the context there. What was going on in your life to make you think now was that time? Yeah, interesting. So we did five years at the Connor. It was a five-year deal. But I'd been working with Gordon, so we looked for a new restaurant together. At the time, there was lots of people that said to me, why don't you go on your own? You know, there were people saying, we'll invest and all that. But I, in myself, I didn't feel ready. How old were you? You'd have been late 30s? Yeah, yeah late 40s? 30s, something like that. Yeah, maybe 38, probably. And I, I didn't feel ready for it, you know, because the one thing, again, you work for a, good, a big company like Gordon's, they're paying the bills. Yeah. You know, you have a bad month, your food costs don't deliver or you're a bit quiet. They've got the resources and the backup to make sure all your staff are paid, all your suppliers are paid, mm. all your bills are paid. And so I was quite happy in that notion that I had that protection, I suppose. So we went off and we bought Murano, Gordon, myself, and Chris Hutchinson, and his father-in-law. And so they put all the money up. I had a small percentage and we opened the restaurant. Kate, really great success, blah, blah, blah. The days before social media, loads of critics, all lovely, all great. And then things were starting to change in the company anyway. And mm. I, that's when it suddenly felt right. And I thought Murano was doing so well. It was, I suppose I can cockily say because of me. You know, Gordon yeah. had done one tasting with me and then he just let me go with it. So You had your Michelin star. Yeah, yeah, I had all of that sort of thing. So it was going really well. And I thought, I can do this. And so I thought, I'm going to go out on my own. And, and well, actually, I thought, I'm going to see if he'll sell me Murano because mm. he owed 90% out of 10. And everyone said, no, he won't. He'll never sell you. That's not Gordon, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what? He might because he does really love me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in my innocent way. And we went out for dinner one night and I said, Gordon, I want to move on. I want to be on my own. I want to do my own thing. I said, I've loved working with you, but I think it's time now. I mm. want to earn the money for me. And he said, he goes, what do you want to do? He goes, I'd love to buy Murano. He goes, sure, if that's what you want. He goes, why didn't you say this couple of, you know, two wow. years ago when we first did it, you know? And then that's it. The rest is history. Um, and then as a result of it, more opportunities came. So I was on my own. You mm. know, I didn't need, you know, before anything came through, it would all be under the Gordon banner. But now it was on my own. It was great. So, and But then you are waking up going, is the restaurant full? How much was that piece of meat? How much is that toilet roll you spent? You know, yeah. everything. Suddenly the bottom line is all your responsibility. And how did you cope with that change? Did you feel more stressed or? I think definitely more stressed, certainly to make sure that everything's running right. I think you become a mad micromanager for the first year or so because you want to put yourself in everything and I would literally go you know I'll order the pencils I'm going to order this no no don't do that you know everything which became insane right. but then you make sure you've got great people around you mm. and you also I think the big skill is where you um you got to recognize in yourself what you can do mm. and bring people in to do the stuff you can't yeah. and I'm 
absolutely can do the creative side. I'm great with people. I can come up with the ideas about marketing and all that sort of thing. I'm rubbish about making the books balance. I know how to run a business. Yeah. I know how to make money. But I'm not interested in making sure that we've paid the electricity. Yeah. That's an accountant. That's a finance guy. Yeah. And so I think that's what you're doing. You make sure you've got, you know, good people who help you and do the bits you don't want to do. And I think that's the key to it all. If you look back at your career, what was the hardest point? I have to say post-COVID, I'll be honest. I think coming out of COVID into a hospitality industry that was short of staff, incredibly sort of staff um, to the point that we were closing days because we had no staff which I never thought I'd end up doing ever in my life yeah finding good staff because really good staff had decided actually I've been at home for six months I don't want to go back to that that yeah. business the hang on from Brexit which yeah. is again sure you decimated, lost so many yeah, people yeah you know decimated the hospitality in some more way not just even in people in produce prices what everything and that to me was the hardest, that there were points where I'd do services and I'd come out and I thought, I'm I'm in tears here nearly because they were so bad because the cooks weren't good enough, the front of house weren't good enough. Mm. You were getting a hassle from customers because they couldn't quite believe things weren't as they were mm. and they just thought you could switch on a tap. You know, it's amazing how many people were slagging off restaurants going, oh, I tried to book online. They said they had no bookings. And then I went there and it's half empty. And it was like, and I said to those people, I said, because we can control the covers then. Mm. If we open a book and it's full and we have no staff, you're going to have a shit night. So sorry you're eating in a half empty restaurant, but you're going to at least have great food, good service. Mm. But you need full restaurants to make your business work. So that was it. And I remember thinking I needed a bit of coaching. And I I saw this lovely lady, Madeline. Right. And within 10 minutes, I I was in floods of tears. And that's not me at all. I've never been that sort of person. I'm normally, might go, oh, yeah, it's a bit shit. And then I pull myself together and I move on. That's very much my mum. Pull yourself together. What's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. Um, But I was in tears. And I said, God almighty, Madeline, what have you done to me? I'm never (laughs) like that. And then I realised there was an age that I was probably menopausal. You know, so there's a lot of things that all... And I said, I've never felt so like this could all go horribly wrong and I could lose everything. Yeah. But then it gives you perspective. And I also say, you know what, if God forbid I did lose everything, I can still have a job. I can still make a living. I can still, mm. open, you know, so I'm not so like, obviously not like that anymore. But it was, that was the worst time, I think. The first three months post opening COVID fully was just horrendous. Andrew, can you tell me about Neil, please? Really? He was just <laughs> in, brought me a nice cup of coffee, bless him. Um, he's thank you, great, he's Neil. Neil. Yeah, thank you, Neil. He's wonderful. He's my husband. He's uh, runs the French Genesis Soho. Great. Neil and I worked together at the Connaught for four years. So you were his boss? I was his boss. Always made me laugh. He was a great, yeah. great chef to party, really good cook, really great cook. And he always wanted to go to France. His mum had taught French and stuff, and he knew French. And so towards the end of the time, he started applying for jobs in France. And I always really got on with him, you know, and we really, we became very dear friends. Um, and then when he went off to France, I'd go out and see him in France, see how he's getting on. And towards his time in France, it was probably, he was getting into his 30s and I was getting into my early 40s. You know, it's a bit, yeah. bit of an age gap. Then it suddenly fruitioned into romance, you know, we yeah. thought, you know, this is how it is. 
and it felt right then you know he'd matured and uh, you know i was in a different place in my life you know yeah. and uh, and we just and we've been together ever since you know yeah. now that we got married 2018 yeah what was your wedding like who did the food brilliant it was brilliant all my chefs did the food oh Real, lovely Neil's chefs we wrote the menu suppliers we did it in the local there's a i live in spitterfields very fortunate yeah. to be in spitterfields so there's a wonderful church there it's christ church is the name of the church and you can do everything there you can do events so we had this ceremony it was a glorious day so we came outside for drinks then they turned the church into a dining room yeah and then you go downstairs into the crypt and we had the disco and it was brilliant it was a great wedding. in fact everyone says it was such a brilliant party yeah. i said there was a wedding by the way where vows <laughs> were taken <laughs> But it just says, you know, out, out, I mean, everyone, so many people come up to it and go, it was my best wedding ever. I said, what about your own? No, better than my own. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream. Um, okay. And before I let you go, we must speak about the fact that you are now a podcaster. Oh, my Lord. Yes. And we share a, um, we share a colleague in common in Nick Grimshaw. Um, yeah. How has it been working with Nick? How has it been being a podcaster? Well, I mean, as Nick will tell you, I'm a bit um, dopey about these things. You know, when I got this email from my PR, they said, Nick Grimshaw, podcast waitress. Oh, yeah, I'll just I'd flake through it. Yeah. Didn't realise it was tight to be with Nick on. I thought I was being interviewed on the right. podcast. So when I went there, I was going, went for it. I suppose speed dating. And we just got on very well. I'd met Nick once before years ago at Linewood. Yeah, I, I'll be honest, and he's fully aware that I never really listened to his radio show. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I've listened more to your stuff and late night than I ever listened to Nick. And so, even when he did the DJ set live, and goes, "Do you see it?" I he goes, "Oh, thanks for the support." I said, like you needed me. What you want to ask? And we've just got on very well. We've got on very well. He yeah. takes the Mickey out of me. I take the Mickey out of him. Yeah. Um, it works. We're very different people. Yeah. But, and I think it works because of that. But we work well together because professionally we want it to be right. He'll listen to me when I talk about food. I know what I'm talking about. He knows about broadcasting yeah. and how it works. So And and, and people are enjoying it. Yeah. People can't quite believe we've only just got together and it's worked very well. Yeah, I think the thing everyone says, how do you describe Nick? And I said, absolute honesty. Yeah, I think he's 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 very real. Yeah, and you know we've been. So I've been very. He's very kind. He, he's invited me to parties, and I've seen you at them and yeah, stuff. Yeah, And when you look at his circle of friends, given that he's probably got everyone on his phone, his circle of friends is very neat. I think. Yes. And he's got his core. Some of that core have been with him for years. Yeah. And that to me is a very good sign of someone who's got you know proper you know, morals and life mm. and, you know, and mm. his family's a big deal. And the fact his family's such a big deal, I love, you know. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, you yeah. know, like, when I saw all his friends at his party and then a family, it's like you're sitting there, oh, I knew, oh, I knew. everyone yeah. knows her. <laughs> everyone, everyone knows his dad. Yeah, you yeah, all yeah, know yeah, yeah. our Andrew, yeah. you know. So <laughs> I think, and that, I know, it's just something very real and very honest. And, I, and I'm very, I feel very privileged that, um, you know, he's invited me into that sort of inner circle, I suppose, to a degree. Yeah. He always laughs. He goes, you never come. I said, I will. Of course I'll come. <laughs> I fell off the chair in front of his, I fell off <laughs> I the stool in that. front of his mum. I mean, what an impression. I was literally also the tit in his back garden. They were just, and he asked, it's the rosé, it's the rosé. You just fed <laughs> me so much. I'm just absolutely paralytic. Yeah. I'm sure his mum loved that. I'm sure his mum's fallen she off did. a few stools in her yeah, time Yeah, I'm well. sure. Yeah, as is he. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Angela, the change you would still like to make in your life, um, what would that be? I would like to move out of London. I love London. Don't misunderstand me. I right. absolutely adore London. 
but I want to move to the sea. I just want to be by the sea. I just, I just want to wake up every morning hearing the sea. I'll be honest, that's all I want. I find the sea very calming. Yeah. So I'd still work. I've no interest in sort of necessarily retiring, but I just want to be by some water that I can go swimming every day or walk on the beach. And I love, I love the sun, but I love that English wet windiness on mm. shingle. You know, mm. we went down to Margate the other day and it wasn't the best weather, but it didn't bother me. It was yeah. just great. And if Neil and I could get a little restaurant together, he cook and I'd do front of house. So that's what we'd like to do. So a little restaurant by the sea. Oh, yeah, something Angela. like that. That we don't have to rely on anyone in the nicest possible way. That if mm. we wanted to, like I said, close on a Thursday lunch. Sorry, we're not open. Yeah. You know, and actually this is the menu today. Yeah. You know, that's it. You yeah, know, just yeah. keep it like that. Well, I look forward to that restaurant by the sea. <laughs> I will Perfect. be there. I will be there. Listen, what a pleasure yeah. to speak to you. Thank you oh, so lovely much. to see you, Annie. Do please rate, review and subscribe to Changes. It is so appreciated. And if you fancy sharing it on social media too, that would be amazing. The more people we can get listening to these episodes, the better we want to tell our stories far and wide. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.